everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. You're listening to part two of the teleological argument or the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. And what we discussed in part one is, is essentially the data that has been collected, uh, especially 80s, since the 80s and onward, but really in the latter half of the 20th century, which demonstrate conclusively that the universe is finely tuned for the existence of life. And what that means is that it is far, far more likely that the universe should have been life-prohibiting. And instead, we see the nature of physics, as well as the history of the universe, conspiring to allow for complex life. And so the natural conclusion uh, that some draw from this is that, well, it looks like the universe knew we were coming. It looks like there's an intelligent mind behind the universe. And that is kind of the direction that, uh, that, that physics is trending. And so the response to that is what we're going to look at in this episode. Here in part two, we're going to look at, well, how has the scientific community and, and, and the community of philosophers, how have they responded to this overwhelming wave of evidence that the universe does indeed appear to be finely tuned? The evidence I cite in part one is peer-reviewed mainstream science. I, I hardly quote any Christian scientists or philosophers at all. Uh, I, I intentionally do that. And, and, and through my presentation, not only of the actual facts, but also of the experts who are citing these facts and, and, and direct quotes from primary materials, um, I, I, I hope to demonstrate uh, why we think that the universe is finely tuned and, and, and how the universe is finely tuned. And so if part one is explaining how the universe is finely tuned and why we know the universe is finely tuned, here in part two, we're going to be talking about why the universe is finely tuned. What are the explanations that these experts give? And what are the explanations that philosophers have offered for why the universe might be life-permitting against all odds? Thank you so much for listening to the Welder Christian Podcast. And without further ado, here is part two. So what do scientists and philosophers make of this incredible fine-tuning the universe displays? What are we going to do with this new information of the overwhelming complexity and intricacy of the design of the universe? Well, there are four views. The first is that the fine-tuning of the universe doesn't need an explanation. It just is the way that it is, and that's it. Like a peculiar rock face on a coastal beach, or an arrangement of trees in a forest. Sure, it's complicated, and sure, it's unlikely. But if advanced life is admitted to be just as insignificant as an arrangement of stars or the grooves in a rock, we really don't need an explanation for it. Just like you don't need an explanation for why a snowflake is as complicated as it is. This, I think, would be true if advanced life was only as significant as a puddle or a snowflake. But the existence of consciousness seems to denote that we are something wholly unique and notable in the universe. Eric Weinstein, a mathematical physicist from Harvard, was on a podcast I was listening to, and he said something really interesting. He said, in some sense, we are the AI who have become self-aware. We are Skynet. We are matter and motion that has recognized itself. I think that's a really interesting thought, which puts down this notion that the fine-tuning of the universe doesn't need an explanation. Because we are conscious beings who can recognize purpose and meaning in our perceptual systems, we can recognize genius engineering when we see it. And so the intelligence of, of the feats of engineering required to engineer the universe look designed. 
What are, what are we going to do with that information? So when we look into the universe and we see that the universe is incredibly fine-tuned for the existence of conscious life, uh, and boom, here we are, it begs the question, why? Are we here by design or are we here by accident? Are we here because it is somehow inevitable? What's the big deal with the universe? Why? Why? And I think only an incredibly nihilistic person could sustain the view that life is so meaningless that its existence doesn't even merit an explanation. And I think the existence of consciousness uh, really dismisses that notion. Perhaps I should be more specific. It's not only the nature of consciousness, uh, but it's also the contents of the human experience that fuel my intuition that the universe does require an explanation for its fine-tuning. The human capacity for love and beauty and joy, but also for pain and sorrow and, 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 and vice as well as virtue, it's these things that fuel the impulse that the, that the universe uh, does require an explanation for its fine-tuning, uh, the, the, the physical constants of life that make life possible. Because life is more than just roaming the desert and finding food and reproducing, it's, it's the fact that there's so much more to life uh, that, that, in my opinion, uh, justifies uh, the impulse that our universe does indeed require some kind of an explanation. And my point here is really just to say that if you deny this, if you think that life is no more interesting than a puddle, and just like a puddle or a complicated rock face doesn't need an explanation, or, or a snowflake doesn't need an explanation for its complexity, life is kind of the same way. If, if that's your position, then I want to push you to be consistent. Your position, then, is basically that nothing ever needs an explanation at all, that all things simply exist because they exist, and they are simply because they are, and no adequate or satisfying explanation is even necessary. Uh, and, and, and I just think that's an untenable position. I, I'm, I'm admitting that it is intellectually available to you, but I'm pointing out the cost of such a position. So, so here we are, against truly unfathomable odds. Remember that I'm also skipping over further evidence of, of design in microbiology. I'm skipping over the complete enigma of abiogenesis, which is the question of how life could have ever uh, spawned into existence from non-life in the first place. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping over DNA. I'm skipping over all that kind of stuff. And so if I were to write a three-volume book on why the universe seems uh, designed by God, uh, the first volume would be why the laws of physics and the history of the universe have conspired to create human life. And that's the volume that we're talking about today. Volume two would be, how did human life, or any life, develop and form if not for intelligent design? And volume three would be, if DNA is the code which builds biological machines, where did the code come from if not a biological engineer, if not an intelligent mind? So let's look at the answers that people are willing to offer besides the answer that there is no answer. If you accept that there is no answer and we are just as insignificant as a random rock face or any other random set of, of perhaps complicated you know, measurements, then you're basically granting that nothing requires an explanation and everything is pointless and meaningless, including life itself. So I don't think most people want to go there. The second possible answer is physical necessity. Because it is metaphysically possible, it's, it's philosophically possible that the universe exists as it is, as a logically necessary state. But someone who wanted to defend this view would have to demonstrate that it is metaphysically impossible 
for the universe to be any different than it actually is. And on this view, you would have to defend the claim that it is impossible for the universe to be life-prohibiting, which seems very dubious, and no one has tried, but technically, that's an option. So, you know, I, I want to throw that out there. I think maybe the Stoics had an idea of something like this, where there's this kind of divine reason that permeates the universe, where it, there's a divine plan that has to be enacted, even though, you know, they, they don't believe in a creation event, so they thought the universe was eternal, but but there's this kind of divine reason that, that, is, that will always orient things towards, uh, well, reason, basically. Anyway, side tangent. Um, sometimes, well, one other thing about physical necessity that I should point out is that sometimes there's a misunderstanding between physicists and the public as to what is called a theory of everything. Some physicists believe that as science progresses, there will be a theory of everything which reconciles the conflicting worlds of special relativity and quantum mechanics by reducing the four physical constants, gravity, the strong and weak nuclear force, and the electromagnetic force. And they think that a theory of everything will explain how all of these forces are really explained by one fundamental particle or wave. An example of one possible theory of everything is M-theory, or superstring theory, uh, championed by Stephen Hawking. But Hawking himself gave a talk at UC Davis clarifying how even, super, even, if, even if superstring theory was proven to be true, this wouldn't explain the fine-tuning of the universe, nor would it offer an explanation why the universe as we observe it is physically necessary, or even more probable than not. The theory of everything does not literally encapsulate everything. It simply encapsulates certain enigmas in physics and cosmology. Unfortunately, superstring theory has also fallen on hard times in recent years, as the claims put forth by physicists are untestable even in theory. Physics has landed in a place where it has become casual and routine to suggest theories so wildly speculative and so far beyond the realm of testability that really what it is, disgui that really what it is, is, is disguised metaphysics. That's really what it is. So, the darling of physics for 30 years is starting to be exposed for what it really is, which is an untestable, speculative, wild theory which sounds far more like science fiction than actual science. Whether it's, you know, any, any theory that you can think of which goes beyond actual testable physics. Uh, that's, that's basically what's happening. So, in response to the fine-tuning of the universe, no one has actually put forth an argument for the physical necessity of the universe's constants. The closest example that I should mention is Barrow and Tipler's anthropic principle argument. We've actually already mentioned Barrow and Tipler um, and, their, and their article, which they make this argument, and they point out that we shouldn't actually even be surprised to find that the universe is finely tuned for our existence. And the reason is, is because if it wasn't finely tuned for our existence, we wouldn't be able to observe it. <laughs> we wouldn't be here to notice that the universe was or was not finely tuned. And so as stated... This has become known as the quote-unquote weak anthropic principle because, of course, it is undeniably true that if the universe was not finely tuned, we wouldn't be here to see the difference. But what Barrow and Tipler originally were arguing for has become widely rejected and denoted as the quote-unquote strong anthropic principle, which argues that because the universe we observe has to be finely tuned for our existence in order for us to observe it, Conclusion, the universe has to be finely tuned because we exist. 
And reflecting on this for about five minutes will reveal the flaw in their argument. Just because the universe has to be finely tuned for our existence in order for us to notice this fine-tuning doesn't mean that it isn't unfathomably more likely that the universe should not become finely tuned and unfathomably more likely that we wouldn't be able to observe it at all. So, if not physical necessity, can pure chance explain the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, most physicists who want to hold on to their atheistic presuppositions have employed hypothetical speculative theories in order to give pure chance a uh, more reasonable spin. These theories include a wide array of multiple universe theories, oscillating universe theories, or many-world ensemble theories. And the common theme for all of these speculations is the existence of an enormous number, perhaps an infinite number, of trial runs for the universe to be able to get it wrong. This universe failed because gravity wasn't strong enough. That universe failed because the energy density of the universe was off. But in our universe, we just happen to get lucky. And hey, if you have enough universes, at some point, we become inevitable again. And that's really what they want. But because physicists sometimes don't realize that they're venturing into essentially metaphysical, philosophical waters, they fall into philosophically impossible or problematic pitfalls. Let me give you two examples. The first problem with the explanation of chance, or you know any version of the multiverse theory, for example, uh, besides the fact that it's by definition untestable, there's no evidence to support it, uh, nor could there ever be any evidence, by definition, since the alternate universes are not observable. It's not, it's not a scientific theory uh, after, like, at all. Like, if we were able to observe an alternate universe, it would no longer be an alternate universe. It would just be another feature of our universe. But it doesn't matter. No matter how you calculate a multiverse theory, right? Let's, let's, say, let's say, as some do, the Big Bang was actually one of in a, perhaps an infinite amount of Big Bangs, and our universe exists in a bubble alongside in perhaps an infinite number of bubbles. Well, any explanation like that is, is going to have a huge problem. And the reason is, is because, congratulations, you just landed yourself an explanation for everything and for nothing. Okay? You actually have just destroyed all science and all logic. And let me explain why. You might ask, why did our universe have finely tuned anthropic constants that produced life? Well, the answer would be that we are one of many we are one of many universes, and we happen to be in the one universe that got lucky. Well, that's convenient. That's that's the answer they that they want. But then, if you were to ask, well, why do human beings have two arms? Well, you guessed it, because we happen to be in the universe where that's how we are. Well, can matter actually be created or destroyed? Well, we don't know because we live in the universe where all microscopes are actually portals to another dimension and they are secretly sentient beings who are deceiving everyone who looks into a microscope. Wait, what? Well, why did I get a royal straight flush five times in a row in my poker game last night? Not because I'm a cheater, but because we happen to be in the universe where I got lucky. And maybe, by the way, we are also in the universe where in the year 2021, gravity ceases to exist or trees are transformed into elephants or anything else that's crazy and inexplicable. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? Do you see my point? As soon as you say that there are so many infinite universes that nothing matters and all rules are arbitrary, then you actually lose the significance of any rule or any claim. 
your definition of reality becomes this Rick and Morty landscape of nonsense where anything can happen and everything is absurd and the explanation for anything isn't science, rules, logic, whatever. The explanation is, well, we just happen to be in the multiverse, in the specific universe, where that's the thing that happened. And so suddenly, you actually can't make any predictions, know anything, or understand anything. Because the answer for everything, and I really mean everything, is the multiverse. We happen to be in the possible universe where that was the outcome of XYZ. You end up being unable to explain anything at all, ever. Because everything has one explanation. The infinite cosmos did it. But it turns out that there is an even more crippling idea to the world ensemble or multiverse theory. <laughs> this is interesting. It turns out that if you're thinking about multiple universes, there are implications which are dizzying and completely fatal to the theory. So for example, if it is true that we are in one of many universes, then it is overwhelmingly more probable that we will exist in a universe that only appears to be complicated and finely tuned, when in reality, it isn't. This is called the Boltzmann brain problem, because in a many-world hypothesis, we are far more likely to happen to exist in a simple universe than a complicated universe. Why? Well, because there are more simple universes than complicated universes. Unless you are going to say infinite universes, in which case you have the aforementioned problem. So, if you're going to exist in a universe that is more likely to be simple than complicated, then it is more likely that you exist in a universe where you are the only conscious mind, and you have only existed for a fraction of a second and all of your memories are illusory, and the universe you see around you is actually an illusion, conjured up by one of the many possible universes, and who knows how long that you're going to remain in existence before maybe your universe collapses or something. It turns out that upon philosophical reflection, the finely tuned universe we observe is not the most likely universe to be observed in a many-worlds hypothesis. So the world ensemble model or really any multiverse theory, still has to explain why our finely tuned universe is the one we in fact observe, when we are far more likely to observe a universe without much complexity at all, since those universes would be far more likely to spawn out of an infinite universe creating machine. Does that make sense? It's more likely that you're a brain in a vat, because that is a simpler and more likely universe than the actually complicated universe which you in fact observe. And as scientists, you know, they observe. So you see that the multiple universe hypothesis is not actually a scientific hypothesis, but it's actually a metaphysical theory. And it's one that's completely untestable, wrought with philosophical problems, two major ones that I just mentioned. There are more, but those are the, those are the knockdown drag out problems. The Boltzmann brain problem and the now you can't explain anything at all ever problem. So... Really, all of these multiple world ensemble problems or universes, all of these multiple universe theories, they came about as an attempt to answer the question of fine-tuning. Why does the universe look unfathomably fine-tuned for our existence? And the obvious answer is that someone has indeed monkeyed with the physics. The universe did indeed see we were coming because someone created it for us to be here. So if you want to avoid that problem, if you want to avoid that conclusion, uh, you got to make up some really crazy theories and then take a huge leap of faith to believe that you're not a Boltzmann brain. Um, and then 
if you do take that leap of faith, you also somehow have to explain why anything is not just like the Rick and Morty universe where anything can happen and, and nothing is explained at all by anything because we live in an impossible universe. Uh, the other option, I guess, is that you could just say, no, there's one universe and it happened to blow up. Nothing blew up and caused everything exactly as we see it, which are so incredibly, which is so incredibly unlikely that I don't even know how to talk to a person when, who would want to accept that. That is so intellectually dishonest. So, like Edward Harrison said, you can choose. You get to choose. Incalculable, incalculable multiverses and blind chance to create everything that you see today or one designer who knew what he was doing. Those are your choices. Do you want to deal with the questions of theology and religion or the problems of an infinite multiverse? Those are the options. I'm sorry if you're not a fan of that. This is the universe which we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in a universe where we have to deal with the hard truths of theology and religion. We have to, we have to ask those questions. Or you can ponder about an infinite multiverse and take a leap of faith and deal with the questions of how you could have a rational mind in an infinite universe and, and those, those kinds of things. And that brings us to our fourth possible conclusion, which I bet you can already tell is my preferred view. I know, I know. You would have never guessed it from all the bias. <clears throat> it might just be that the most reasonable, simple, and plausible explanation for the existence of the incredible feat of engineering that is our universe is a divine engineer. And it's a pretty good scientific theory because it explains why there is something rather than nothing, as well as why that something is so acutely fine-tuned for the existence of advanced life and why that, that, that advanced life is self-conscious and aware and why that's, that advanced life has a faculty for understanding and responding to morality and why intelligent life has had a religious history and has religious experiences uh, that are profound and significant. Intelligent design is the simplest and best explanation for the universe as it exists today, and modern science proves it. That's the conclusion of the podcast. That's why I'm telling you all the things that I'm telling you. And what's really frustrating to me is that the new atheists today who get all the press and all of our attention and all the YouTube videos, they never, ever, ever address any of these arguments, nor the staggering facts assembled by actual physicists and cosmologists. The actually brilliant atheists who are wrestling with these facts and writing the books and papers and trying to understand these hard truths, they go unnoticed. But Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris and Lawrence Krauss and the late Christopher Hitchens, they don't even try to respond to this stuff. <laughs> I invite you to watch their debates. I know I have. And they don't even, they don't even address these arguments. They, they, don't, they don't address them in their books. Uh, they don't have substantive answers to give in debates. They don't actually offer any new ideas. They don't even know the ideas of their atheist colleagues who are wrestling with these discoveries and trying to come up with multiverse theories and trying to wrestle with the objections to their multiverse theories. They just go, oh yeah, I'm sure there's an explanation. I'm sure science will get around to it. Like, that's a God of the, that, that, that's a science of the gaps argument. Instead of a God of the gaps argument, where I don't know, so God did it. Well, what they're doing is, I don't know, but science will explain it. <laughs> that's not an argument. Meanwhile, we are looking at the evidence 
and saying, this is where it points. And they're like, yeah, but I don't like where that points. That's, that's a religious answer. You, you can't come up with that. Well, well, sorry that you don't like where the evidence is pointing. And before I conclude, there, there is a common response to all teleological arguments that, uh, that you hear all the time from people who don't know what they're talking about. <clears throat> and it, it makes the list of counterarguments so dumb that I could not have made them up. And just in case you ever stumble across this, I really, really want you to have a good answer. And, and the reason is because I hear this all the time and I just cringe. And, and I have to really be like, okay, no, just, just breathe. Um, this person, just, they just haven't, they haven't researched it. It's okay. They're, they're not dumb. They just didn't think about this. And that's okay. Not everyone can spend their life thinking through this kind of stuff. So anyway, the, the argument that I, that I want you to be able to respond to is uh, the response to the teleological argument that, that goes basically like this. It's a, it's a fine-tuning response. And, and they say, look, thinking the universe is finely tuned for you is like a puddle waking up one day and realizing, wow, the world I find myself in fits me really nicely. This pothole is really well designed for, for me. I mean, after all, I'm a, I'm a puddle. And in fact, it fits me so nicely that I really have to conclude that I was made for this puddle. Or excuse me, for this hole. I'm a puddle and I was made for the hole. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? I'm, I'm kind of losing my brain here. And I did some research and traced this argument back to Douglas Adams, uh, the, the, the pothole, the puddle in a pothole response, the teleological argument. And Douglas Adams is a science fiction author who wrote the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I went, ah, that makes sense. Because he completely misunderstands the teleological argument in order to make this point. The analogy is terrible. The point of the analogy is to try to say that, hey, just because the universe is really complicated and it produced you doesn't mean that the universe is finely tuned because maybe the universe could be any number of ways and you could still exist. Well, the problem with that is that it literally is just not an analogy for the fine tuning of the universe, which we are observing. What we observe is in fact a universe, which if any tiny thing was different, there would be no puddle. And so the question isn't, well, are we going to be a puddle that's shaped like this or a puddle that's shaped like that, but either way we exist. The question is, if it's any different than it is, we're gone. We, we, we never become sentient. The puddle doesn't exist. All of it is gone. And so the point of the fine-tuning argument is to show that actually, no, you, you cannot be different in any number of ways and still exist. The laws of physics or the facts of biology or DNA are not like water, where it will always form a puddle no matter the details of the pothole. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The anthropic constants in the universe have to be specifically tailored to suit human life. Otherwise, no life at all anywhere would be possible. All right, time to conclude. Since Carl Sagan, we have heard the same argument time and time again. There is so much space out there. If even one galaxy out of a billion, one solar system out of that billion, one planet out of that billion could sustain life then there could be millions of civilizations out there just like ours. Sagan and those like him invite us to just run the numbers. We are nothing special and there's a lot more like us. The problem is, is that Sagan made this argument in the 70s. And since then, we have run the numbers. And the more we learn, the more we discover why it makes sense that we are alone in the universe. They actually go backwards. We, we wonder how in the world we could possibly exist in this universe. And I know that UFOs have us stirring in our seats. But listen, SETI has found nothing. 
the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, they found nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch. The universe isn't old enough to have enough advanced civilizations that could produce a civilization that was so far beyond us that, that you know, <laughs> that maybe they mask all of their signals and they don't want to communicate with us, but then they fly around in our sky that we can just see with the naked eye. But anyway, if, if you want to have fun and shoot the breeze because there are lights in the sky that we can't explain, knock yourself out. But the science is in. And it's a complete miracle that we exist. It's a miracle that the universe is life-permitting at all. And the more we discover about how unfathomably fine-tuned our universe is for life, when the Big Bang could have so easily resulted in a life-prohibiting universe, the most reasonable and simple conclusion is that we are here because an intelligent and powerful mind wanted us to be here. And if Christianity is true, then he didn't just want us to be here. He wanted us to look out into the stars with powerful telescopes or just with our eyes on a starry night to behold his majestic handiwork. Another thing I hear atheists say all the time is that if God designed the universe, why is most of it cold and dead and empty? And I think that's kind of a dumb argument because if God just created planet Earth and then there was just nothing over the sky, the atheist would have said, hey, if God is so powerful and so smart, then why didn't he create a vast and complex universe to show us how powerful and smart he is? <laughs> why did he create this just Earth with a dome? What, <laughs> if he's so powerful and smart, why didn't he do this whole complicated thing? And, and you know, But then he does do the whole complicated thing, and, and atheists go, well, why is most of the universe just rock and complicated stars and planets and galaxies? You know? <laughs> but in any case, a good answer to that argument is, is to say with the psalmist, that God created the heavens in order to display his glory. God created the vast universe because it pleases him. It's not all about human beings and what's going on here on earth. God didn't create the universe for your pleasure. He created it for his pleasure. And then he wanted you to share in the pleasure of the universe. He wanted you to look up and say, hey, you see that? I think that's pretty cool. What do you think? That, that, that's what God is like. Job tells us that God has named every star and he manages every black hole and every unseen galaxy and he keeps the heavenly hosts in orbit so that when you look up on a clear night deep in the mountains, you might see the beauty and wonder of God. Many people look into the universe and they feel awe. They feel so insignificant in comparison to the huge expanse of beauty and mystery in the universe. And I think it's fair to say that that was the point. The point is for you to look up and realize that you are insignificant when compared to unfathomably greater things. And it appears as if the universe is working as designed. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. <laughs>